should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipper. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at commonwealthclub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Well, listen, welcome to Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club for Monday, March 7th, 2016. This was the week, by the way, in which Senator Bernie Sanders was praised by, wait for it, the National Rifle Association. Oh, it's true. They uh, tweeted support for something he said in response to Hillary Clinton's gun control ideas. So he's, he's got their vote. Um, thanks for joining us here in San Francisco. I'm John Zipper, your host for Week to Week. On today's program, we're going to, of course, talk a bit more about this incredible heated presidential primary campaign. We'll also talk about the Supreme Court post Antonin Scalia, uh, Apple versus the FBI, the mentally ill on our streets, and of course some other political news. We always note that the Commonwealth Club is a place of people with a wide variety of views, even Trump supporters. So any views that are expressed up here are those solely of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club. So let's meet our panelists for, day, for today. Excuse me. Starting on the far end of the stage is Carson Bruno, a research fellow specializing in California politics and policy at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's on Twitter at Carson J.F. Bruno. Next to him, you know Melissa Kane, a political analyst for CBS San Francisco, also a host of The Cheat Sheet, which you can find on YouTube. I recommend you hunt it down. She's also an attorney, and she's on Twitter at MelissaKane1. And next to me is... Melissa Kane was taken, sorry. <laughs> and next to me is uh, Chuck Nevius, as you know him as C.W. Nevius, a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. He's on Twitter at C.W. Nevius. So there are question cards because out Melissa there. Melissa Kane was taken. So. Yes. <laughs> um, I've already got some questions. Please keep sending up your questions, and I'll try to get as many asked as possible during the program. So on to our roundtable. Let's just start with Trump. I mean, I've run out of snappy intros to discussions of Donald Trump. Um, so let's actually leave it to uh, New York, former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who today uh, said he was not going to run for president. And anyone, what was his, his excuse for, uh, or his reason for not running? Donald Trump. Yeah. Is that what he said? Yeah. Yeah, he was afraid that he, if he were to run, it would throw the election to Donald Trump. 
regardless of if it was Clinton or Sanders at the, uh, on the top of the ticket for the Democratic side. So he seemed to believe that his running would take more from the Democrats than the Republicans? Yeah, yeah, which played out in the polling, the very limited polling that we've been seeing um, on a three-way kind of head. That he would be a third party. He'd be uh, a third party candidate. Third party candidate, yes. Yeah. That's a tough road. Yeah. That's hard to get a third party going. It's what's, just... what's amazing is his consultants that were kind of <laughs> forming this presidential campaign in the, in, in the wings and the waiting uh, were just really trying to make it sound like he could win the thing. Um, if you actually looked at the map that they were showing him with the polling and everything like that, it actually showed him winning a majority of the, of the uh, Electoral College with Sanders as the Democratic nominee. Wow. So they were definitely pushing. They wanted some money. And, and Dorothy they, and Toto was Secretary of State. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This was, this was, was consultants gone little, wild. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was really... This uh, seems a little wild. Yeah. They, they saw a billionaire like, oh, yes. We, we, can, we, can, we can retire early if we do this. Yeah. Well, I think to Melissa's point, what she said before, the idea that, and we've all said this, but the idea at this point in the election, we'd be saying that Trump was the guy controlling the race is crazy. But the other thing is that we could say broker convention with a straight face. And not only that, some of the candidates are saying, I mean, Rubio and Kasich are acting like that's a strategy. Like, you know, I win my home state, you know, things don't break the right way, who knows what happened. And this would be, as you said, you know, marching bands marching into a brick wall. It would be, it'd be fat. We'd love to see it. Those of us who have to write about it. This, we like that. This is the time of year where you usually see reporters talking about contested yeah. Yeah. conventions because that's, I mean, is every reporter, is every pundits, I mean, anyone who's involved in politics, their kind of their dream is to actually see a right. real contested convention. But this is the first time they can really see the candidates actually trying to angle for one and actually trying to convince their supporters to vote strategically so that they can get to one. Uh, right. It's quite, right. quite something in the political world right now. Well, and to look back at it and think, this is the best we have to go against Trump. I mean, there's, there's nobody else that could, that could, you know, I guess Kasich is trying to be the adult in the room, but he's kind of a dish rag himself, really. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see a leader here, do you? I mean, I don't see someone and, and Trump a is trying- A dish rag? <laughs> Ouch. Maybe dish rag's a little harsh. But <laughs> yeah. Okay, so there, there was a headline that I guess was fairly old, but I just saw it pop up again, which is that Mitt Romney actually has filed papers with the FEC to be a candidate, possibly. Um, now, Melissa, he, you're, you've said, obviously, he couldn't even be on the ballot in a lot of states. Um, is that a play to have his name on that wild, contested Chicago 1968-type convention floor? Well, I mean, of course, in his, you know, his, his big speech, you know, I guess, you know, America's Choice is trying to be Reagan's speech. Um, you know, he did, you know, he very sort of pointedly did not endorse any of the candidates left on the ballot, sort of leaving the door open for himself. He has since said, oh, no, 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 this was not me trying to you know, get myself named. No, don't, don't be silly. Uh, which like everyone with like a mother-in-law is like, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you know, they're just like, oh, forget about me. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. not about me. I'll be fine. Uh, so I don't know how genuine his sort of, his sort of post speech, you know, uh, deflection has been. I think, you know, if they insisted, if they really came crawling at the uh, convention in Cleveland, he would Dane to enter, you know, to entertain the option of being, uh, of being the guy, but, but it's hard to believe he's going to do any better than like a Kasich or a Rubio. I mean, as an establishment candidate, it's like, what is it that he's bringing to the table that crew that, you know, they, it's going to get the crew supporters or maybe in some Trump supporters. I, I don't really see it, but, uh, but yeah, he's, he's, I don't buy at all his denial that he's interested. Yeah, in what it. did you think of his speech or did it, 
my assumption was watching this or hearing about it was that Mitt Romney criticizing Donald Trump is exactly what Trump supporters don't like about the Republican Party, that he is the establishment they say has not delivered the change they want. So did he just help Trump with that? I mean, it, I think it was helpful in the sense that you're never going to convince Trump supporters to vote for someone else. Mm -hmm. They may not vote, but they're not going to go vote for Cruz, uh, Rubio or Kasich at this point. Um, what you, what the party elites establishment, you know, these people in the back room that really aren't really in the back room, um, what they should have been doing was this much earlier, trying to convince people that yes, Trump is a threat and that we actually do have to vote strategically here, not maybe coalesce around one person. If it seems like one person can't win all the, you know, the delegates they need to, but you know, vote for Cruz where you know, Cruz is strongest, vote for Rubio, vote for Kasich where they're each strongest to basically deny anyone a majority going into the convention. But you know, we've said that over and over and they have not coalesced and they have not yeah. put it together. And it is only now that they're starting to do it. And again, I, I just don't see someone who's making a good solid challenge to Donald Trump. And you know, there's an interesting, there's an interesting story in Politico, I don't know if you saw it, but he's got a win, they, they calculate he has to win seven out of 10 white guys. And what they did is they went back to the races, George Bush, the original George Bush, the first George Bush, Ronald Reagan, they won like 63% of, of white males. But Romney won 62% of white males and he lost by 3 million votes. I mean, Trump's, you know, Trump's window is a lot smaller than people think and I think they could exploit that, yeah. but they aren't, yeah. but they aren't. I, and I, but I do think that it is quite plausible if everything were to go as planned. And I, I think Melissa did a fantastic job of what, talking about what the end of the tunnel looks like. But how do you, like, what, what, is, what does that tunnel look like to get to the end of it? Mm -hmm. And the key is, moving forward, is that the majority of the, the primaries caucuses are now moving into the winner-take-all or pseudo-winner-take-all area, which means some big prizes here, Florida, Ohio, Illinois. I mean, we're talking about California. California actually sends the largest delegation to the, to the RNC every year, which is crazy, but I mean, we are the most populous state. Um, so you know, they make fun of our delegates. Yeah. I interviewed them yeah. in Charlotte, not in Charlotte, in Tampa last year. And they're really, I guess the Texas delegates are like really fired up because they're like, we're Texas, we're Republicans and we're huge. In California, you're adorable, yeah. but like you have no statewide Republican people. There. And we always get put in the our delegates sort of, yeah, we're, away, we're you know. kind of in the locker. We're like <laughs> our, our delegates are kind of. But but the, this and the, the the key here is also not only are they going to be more winner take all, but they're also going to be closed primaries. Only Republicans can vote. For now, quite a few of the states were open. Republicans, Democrats, independents, anyone could vote in, in their caucus or primary. And that has actually had an effect. Uh, Trump has done significantly better in the open, uh, open primaries and caucuses, beating Cruz by about seven-ish points um, versus the closed primaries that have happened already, where Cruz is actually uh, performing the, the best uh, in those closed primaries. But it's been kind of stacked open at the beginning, and now we're moving into the closed ones. So if this kind of moves forward, you could actually see a case where it's actually quite easy for a Cruz Rubio Kasich kind of team to stop Trump from getting majority of the, of the delegates. It's interesting you mentioned the, the open closed primary because I was just handed a question from someone who says, who signed it, Rob, a former Republican. So what he's asking specifically about in California, you know, could we see that kind of uh, thing yeah. where, you Yeah, know, if you want to vote against Trump in the state of California, you have to register as a Republican. 
Yeah, we do not. We we have an open primary and we have this sort of top two, but it doesn't apply to the presidential election. Right. right? So if you have declined to state, you have to pick either Republican or Democrat. Would you have to pick sort of which which ballot you want? I know because I'm a declined to say and I got that in the mail. (laughs) Um, uh, And then but other, you know, but sort of I can pick that as a declined to state, but as a like a Democrat can't vote in the Republican primary. So what about a crazy idea that California might actually be relevant? in terms of making the choice. I think it's, there's no question that we'll be very, relevant. Yeah, it's going to be... And we're so excited. We won't know what to do with that. We're, we're yeah. so excited. We're so used to being <laughs> a, a throwaway. So, so the decision usually is pretty much made by the time mm-hmm. the, the California primary comes around. Well, we're uh, the last. In both parties, or do you think just the Republican will just be... Just Republican. Okay. In my opinion. Um, the thing about the thing to remember, too, about the Republican primary in California, it's it's winner take all, but it's but it's a weird, funky winner take all. Right. So there's sort of 10 statewide delegates that all go to the win- the person who wins statewide. All our other delegates, um, all three, uh, they're broken into congressional districts and each district gets three delegates. So yeah. the top winner in every congressional district gets three delegates. So if you is can, this, the this is this is my like, <laughs> the, uh, this is my like, try, this is my picture of like candidates trying to pick through the state like. Bakersfield is three delegates. San Francisco is three delegates. Um, Fresno is three delegates. Oh, sorry, that's sort of come down here. Fresno is three delegates. <laughs> LA is three delegates. So weirdly, not only might California be relevant, but San Francisco, the yeah. Bay Area no. might be relevant because our, our congressional districts are as good as those three delegates are as good yeah. as and the ones from some other place. You can't just campaign in the Central Valley and win and everything is fine. Every, you've got to go to every congressional district to try to win. And so if it's as close as we think it's going to be, it's going. we might actually see people campaigning here instead of just coming here for money. And, that's, Carson, and that's really a, that's an important distinction with California because... I mean, Nancy Pelosi's congressional district sends the same number of delegates as Kevin McCarthy's. And there are a Lisa. fraction of Republicans in Nancy Pelosi's as there are in uh, Kevin McCarthy's. So you can just, you, your buck goes a long way huh. if you focus it in on the, you know, the urban San Francisco, L.A., San Diego uh, congressional districts because there aren't many Republicans there to kind of try to convince to vote for you. So versus when, going yeah. to someplace Central Valley where you have to spend a lot more money because there's a lot more Republicans there. So when does the Trump helicopter land in Union Square? That's that's, the, that's, <laughs> that's our question, right? Right. Yeah. So what he can actually is, come, but it yeah. could actually be important to him. Right. It can be San very. San Francisco imp- could be important to him. But it doesn't. It doesn't require a lot of money. Everyone thinks California. And they think of you know the governor races, the senatorial races that require tens of millions of dollars to be able to compete statewide. You don't really have to compete statewide. You're running like many congressional mm. elections mm. up and down the states. And so a Kasich who may not have a lot of money in his bank account at, at by the time June rolls around can come in and kind of pick off the districts that he thinks he can compete in based off of demographics, based off of whatever, and be able to actually fund it and win a few, a few uh, uh, delegates out of the whole thing. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. 
Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. It's never failing to surprise me just how each state does this completely different. Has, yeah. I mean, it's like reading about the Holy Roman Empire where, you know, it's like a mixture of, <laughs> you cross one line and suddenly you're speaking a different language. Um, well, it's, 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 I mean, it's the power of the political parties. Remember this year, um, Colorado, I think North Dakota and Wyoming, they're not even having elections. You know why? Because their state political party is like, eh, we don't want to have elections. No caucus, no election, no nothing. They're just sending delegates unbound to the, to the convention. People think that there's some sort of constitutional right or some sort of legal right to even participate in a primary <laughs> caucus. No, 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 no. There's no right to any of it. And uh, the states get to make up their own rules as they go. That's why you saw uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, the elections being decided by in certain precincts by coin tosses, right? Or in Las Vegas, certain precincts, the elections were decided by cards, right? <laughs> Appropriately enough. But I just mean like the states can, uh, there's so much flexibility. There's so much power. Uh, and people don't realize how little legal recourse they have to allege like a, a disenfranchisement when a state is determining whether or not they're even going to bother to have one mm -hmm. of these elections. Okay, now I know if we asked you this, you would say, oh, no, we don't want to talk about that. But you all saw the Republican debate on Thursday or have heard about it. Um, Donald Trump <laughs> went there. And uh, <laughs> I, I, my question almost is, I guess is, uh, so if the Republican Party manages to really make him mad. I mean, this is him speaking when he was a bit upset at a, at a debate. What do you think? How this upset man was he? Was he a little? <laughs> <laughs> just can't resist it. It's just, yeah. Well, I don't know where you guys are thinking. I was, that was a genuine question. Well, even in last night's debate, I don't know if you caught uh, Bernie Sanders at one point, he was talking about some huge spending. He's like, I probably shouldn't say huge. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, uh, let, did, you hear, um, did you hear the new, the new diagrammed Bernie Sanders sentence? Did you hear that? It's noun, verb, Wall Street. <laughs> every sentence is, every sentence is that. 
Actually, the, the, it, you probably have seen also the news about you know Chris Christie, who <laughs> formerly could not stand Donald Trump, then endorsed Donald Trump. Um, Stockholm syndrome. And and uh, I, it was in the news quiz in Huffington Post this week about how uh, he actually in a press conference had to. Uh, deny that he was being held hostage during a, <laughs> a press conference where he was just standing behind Donald Trump. Well, but not, for yeah, not not to pile up, but my, but my favorite tweet of that was, he looks just like my dog when he realizes we're going to the vet. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and to bring it a bit local, Meg Whitman, who of course former candidate for governor, governor, and uh, now I guess she's the head of AP, HP. She was uh, Chris Christie's national finance chairman, or something mm-hmm. like that. She unloaded on Chris Christie in, in a statement, just calling him an opportunist, and this is horrible, and and you know. She also donated to an anti-Trump pack. She has one of these packs, one of the packs that are. Well, let's oh, just th- now forming to, yeah. to combat. Let's <laughs> talk about that, because there are a number of, of big money Republicans who finally have said, you know, we've got to get behind this. The Koch brothers actually said, no, they weren't going to do that. But then I saw some Koch-linked pack is funding anti-Trump ads. Um, is that going to play into any of the, you know, attempt to stop Trump? Or is that just going to give newspapers a little bit long lease on life with some advertising? I mean, <laughs> Well, I think you've you got to... You got to consider the Marco Rubio lesson, which was if you're going to get down in the gutter, it's like they always say: if you if you wrestle a pig in mud, you both get muddy. The pig enjoys it. You know, I mean, <laughs> that was the worst. That's the, that's what you always see when you know the nerd thinks he has this great one-liner and he just can't wait to put it out there. How about his hands? And it's like his numbers went down immediately. So yeah. if you attack him in Florida, and what is it, ten million dollars they're bringing into Florida? You want to attack him on something that's going to stick. I mean, for some reason, Trump University has stuck. That's, that's one. Uh, you, his business deals and so forth. But a lot of it, uh, it's, it's like, gee, Trump was vulgar. Everybody goes, I know. It's, you know I, I, he's yeah. like, it all the time. I think it's great. You have, to, you have to go after the essence of Trump. It's this idea that he is a winner, you know? That, and if you can kind of chip away at that essence, that, again, it's not going to flip his voters. His voters are voting for Trump. They may not vote at all. And that's that's the important thing, getting them not to vote or at least trying to convince people to coalesce around one of the other people, especially in these winner take all states like Florida and Ohio. Okay, so that's people spending now big money against him. Someone in the audience asked if Trump is the nominee, Mm -hmm. will the RNC, the Republican National Conference, whatever the name is, will will the National Republican Party spend money to support his candidacy or will they, I don't know if you remember when, Barack Obama got elected to the Senate. It was with a big assist from the Republican candidate in that state who basically imploded, sex scandal, got out of office, and they brought in this guy who was so far to the right that Republican leaders in the state were saying, we're not voting for him. Um, You know, will the Republican Party put money behind his candidacy, or will they walk away and say, welcome back in four years? Here's what I think. I think they have to, to a certain degree. It may not be what you would have seen if it was another more kind of mainstream uh, Republican candidate, but they have to do some sort of level of investment just to really kind of save everyone down ballot. What we saw in Nevada in 2014 when Brian Sandoval, the, the, cur- the current governor of uh, Nevada who is running for re-election, the Democrats put up literally a no-name, no-name person. Um, and what that did, it just decimated 
the down, uh, down uh, ballot for the rest of the Democratic ticket. They lost every single statewide office. They lost both houses of the state legislature when no one was expecting either, uh, either chamber to be competitive. Um, so it just goes to show you that if you really abandon the top of the ticket, it does reverberate downward. And so they have to do at least some sort of level of investment. If it's just get out the vote efforts and mm-hmm. kind of just more structural infrastructure sort of stuff in order to help save some of the Senate uh, Senate candidates, House candidates, governor candidates that are running in those states. I remember, too, the, the, the RNC can only give what it has, right? Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't print money. It has to give money that people give it, and then it sort of figures out where the best places are to put that. So um, if, if the money dries up or goes to a trickle, if with the Trump candidacy, you know, it can only do what it can do, uh, you know, based on the contributions that it's getting. So it really, that's really where that part of the funnel is really what's going to determine how much money they're able to put into the campaign. And to take the most cynical possible view, they'll back him if they think he can win. You know, if he's going to, if he, they think he can win, a lot of people are going to have a Chris Christie moment. You know, they're all going to be like, hey. (laughs) But if, you know, and it's, you know, you can run the numbers as much as you want. I mean, it's it's Hispanics and women who are not going to vote for him. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to think he won't win. But right, we thought that for how many months? Nine months now. The only thing I'd say is Carly Fiorina did not have many good moments during her campaign, but she had one. And that was when Trump criticized her looks. And she said, I think every woman in America knows what he's, what he's saying. And it's going to be a different deal if it's Hillary Clinton. If he, if he bullies her, it's not going to be a good look. And I think people will turn on him. Well, let's, let's talk about the Democrats. Um, after Super Tuesday, the, I, the press coverage that I was seeing flipped pretty quickly and started saying, okay, Bernie... It, the writing's on the wall. It's very clear. You've got a very narrow path at this point. You would have to win. You know, the no, the math for him then got very bad. Um, even you know, even though he continues to you know win a caucus here or something, um, is it largely over for him? And if so, should he stay in to make his point? Should he stay in and have a fun time at the convention? Should he get out for the good of the party that he barely acknowledges exists? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? You know, if I was Bernie, why not? Why not stick around? I think he has, he's accomplished something, which is to move Hillary toward his positions. Uh, the chances, it was always a long shot. In his heart of hearts, he probably never thought he'd get this far. And now he's kind of having a great time, you know? Uh, whatever the time in his life, is he going to be on the national news nightly? He can make news with anything he says. He's doing these debates. He honestly believes in what he's doing. He has some money. Why not go to the camp? Why not go to the convention and see what comes of it? He has a lot of money. I mean, he's yeah. outraising he's, Hillary Clinton yeah. right now, which is yeah. an amazing feat, given the, especially that small dollar. I mean, completely small dollar. I mean, he's not really doing any big dollar stuff. So, yeah, I agree. Why? why? And, and she wouldn't have moved if he wasn't Absolutely. ringing the bell. He's he's Absolutely. got a there's a movement behind there's a movement behind him that is you know they're ardent. They want to they want to they want to make something of this, even though they know it's a long shot. Now, along those lines, though, yes, there's a movement there. There's a movement behind Trump. As someone in the audience asks, why are Democrats unconcerned that they have about 30% fewer popular votes in the primaries than the Republican candidates? It has been pointed out in the past. Yes, Bernie has the support, but they actually haven't increased the number of Democrats going to the polls. The Republicans have. Are they the ones with the excitement behind them? Well, I don't think the Democrats are unconcerned. I think they see that it's an issue. But but at the same time, if it's going to be a Trump or even a Ted Cruz, as remember, um, before before Barack Obama, 
we used to vote against people. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there was, you know, for the most part, a lot of turnout is driven not by who you're fired up about, but by who you're really scared about. Uh, And Hillary Clinton does that on the, does that to the folks on the right and Donald Trump and Ted Cruz do that to folks on the left. So while in the primaries, you're not seeing as much of a turnout because maybe folks don't see, don't think that there's a huge difference between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. I think when it comes to the general election, if it is a Trump or even a Cruz on the right, you will see a big turnout on the left. And again, if it's Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders on the left, it's going to drive turnout on the right as well. So I don't necessarily think that that a low turnout or a less than 2008 or 2012 turnout in the primary means that Hillary folks are going to sit home. I guarantee you if it comes if if you're a Hillary supporter and it comes down to Hillary versus Donald Trump, you're going to make time to get out and cast your ballot. I'm pretty, pretty freaking sure. And let's also remember, I mean, primaries and caucuses are low turnout affairs anyway. I mean, yes, we're seeing a little bump in the Republican side versus 2012 or 2008, depending on the baseline. But you're still just talking about, you know, single digits in caucus, uh, uh, in the caucus states and, you know, maybe, you know, 20 to 30 percent turnout in the primary states. So you're not talking about a lot of people. Uh, especially compared to what you to, to expect then in November at the general election. Well, uh, two things. One is if you if your campaign, as Hillary Clinton's campaign was, is to create an era of inevitability, then it's kind of hard to complain about not getting much of a turnout because you know <laughs> it's inevitable, right? So, and and to Carson's point, I mean, I remember in Iowa when Cruz was crow, was crowing about Iowa, and I think I have this right. I think he had about forty one thousand votes, which is essentially a Giants home game. So, <laughs> I don't I don't know that that's a mandate to lead America, you know. <laughs> Someone asks, uh, doesn't Bernie Sanders have a super PAC? And if so, why doesn't anyone talk about it? I thought he did not. Am I wrong? Does he have no, a super there, PAC? There is one. Uh, it's, I mean, he's disavowed it, oh, yes. I think, multiple times because he doesn't like the whole PAC thing. But there is one. But I don't, I don't know if they're spending serious amounts of money, though. Okay. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's spotlight on success and achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, Everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion. Uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me, a real honor to, to be participating in this way. And I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time, uh, not as far as our society has come. So I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets. I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a, a pretty simple life. I like pretty simple things. Uh, 
You know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them. We drove to Lake Tahoe and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on success and achievement presented by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Um, Nancy Pelosi, our own local uh, U.S. representative for many of us in here, has not yet endorsed. Is that a sign of actual ambivalence or is she waiting for the right time? Do we assume she will vote for Hillary Clinton? Do we know? Melissa knows that. <laughs> uh, it seems a little premature. It seems like, look, she's letting her, she, look, her, she, her constituents, there's a lot of folks who live in her district who like Bernie Sanders, right? And why alienate those people before you have to, um, before it becomes inevitable. Look, Hillary, Hillary Clinton won California in 2008. She beat Barack Obama in 2008. Um, it's pretty likely that she's going to win again uh, in 2000, th this year's uh, elections as well, primary elections as well. So uh, I think it's more she's just not willing to sort of make enemies without, without it being necessary at this point. But, but I think ultimately she will endorse Hillary It's not an oversight. She didn't forget to endorse somebody. I mean, she, <laughs> there's, there's a reason, to yeah. list there's a reason why it. she's not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, one last question before we move on. Uh, someone asked about you know, these various Republican uh, threats to file charges against Hillary Clinton for name your thing, Benghazi email server thing. Um, just fun things or does she have a future behind bars? <laughs> <laughs> Well, if she goes behind bars, she's definitely got a future. She could, she could be running that prison, I'll yeah. tell you. Yeah. I'm not sure being behind bars would prevent her campaign. She can do it from behind bars. I thought that story, the story was um, so optimistically spun. The idea that we've checked and no foreign powers were able to hack into Hillary's email account. So you ran the red light, but luckily there was no cop around, so you didn't get caught. <laughs> I mean, it's still stupid. It was still stupid to put it on your private server. It's still it a dumb thing to, to do. And but it's shame also, on her for yeah, banging bang you over the head. It's also it. still a clearly partisan thing. I mean, are those people who are upset about that also upset about, you know, the Cheney Bush emails, that 20 million of them that just kind of disappeared because yeah. they're on a private RNC server? Yeah. yeah. You it, know, I mean, it's... The, the one thing she needs to watch out for, and this, has, this actually is regardless of what the email whole saga is was going to happen or is going to happen um it's i mean the clinton hillary clinton has a honesty trustworthy issue she has for a long time um it's really showing up in the polling numbers really showing up in the exit polls when you look at kind of even what democrats are thinking um so that's something she needs to really be watching out for and i'm surprised they haven't been doing more to try to take care of that when she has, yeah, a contested primary that she's going through, but not one that's really existential threat to her nomination. 
um, that she, they aren't doing more to kind of shore up that honest, trustworthy thing because that, if anything is going to nail her. How do you her, do that? Yeah. Like show somebody like falling backwards. I don't know. Catch them it's and catch like, see, right. I can be trusted. It's not being as kind of technical and legalese and kind of shifty whenever she's trying to explain what happened with her email server. Isn't that in her DNA though? I mean, she, oh, absolutely just, she just absolutely, she starts with the, with the minimum. It is. And I'm not going to do any more. Well, all right, a little bit more, a little bit more. And it just And then something comes the out. The strip, drip, drip has just not been helping her at all. And yeah. I'm surprised they haven't been way more proactive in trying to get her to just be, come up, get, go on stage, be up front, kill it in the, you know, nip it in the bud and move on. And on a Friday they, afternoon. they just really aren't on doing that. a Friday that. afternoon, late. And there's a lot of Democrats, and, and it's just not me being, you know, a Republican here. It's a lot, a lot of Democrats who are kind of scratching their heads also thinking, why isn't she doing this? Uh, because that's going to be her Achilles heel if there, if there is anything. The I, just don't, trustworthiness. Yeah, I just don't think she's a bud nipper. She's, uh, she's going to fight it every step of the way. You know? <laughs> bud nipper. <laughs> bud nipper. Is she a dish rag? No. <laughs> whole different. Dish rag. Dish rag's totally a whole different, whole okay. different thing. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, moving on to our next topic, a, a surprise, I think, to everybody uh, occurred recently when Justice Antonin Scalia of the U.S. Supreme Court passed away while on a hunting trip to in Texas. Um, this suddenly put one of actually Hillary Clinton's big issues she's been talking about, which is, you know, whoever you're going to vote for, remember, Supreme Court, right? They're expecting two, possibly three seats that could, you know, be nominated by the next president. Well, this suddenly made that topic yeah. immediate. So uh, maybe starting with you, Melissa, especially as our, our lawyer, um, First of all, before we get to the issues of, you know, should the Senate hold hearings and all that kind of stuff, tell us how does the Supreme Court operate now with there, there are four and four, presumably. They can have a tie. They do what what do they do? What do they do about cases they've already held that he voted on that they haven't announced yet? Give us a primer right, on so that. To take your last question first, if there's a case that he's already voted on, even if he's already sort of written an opinion and approved it, um, it's if it hasn't been published, anything short of being published sort of goes back in the bullpen. So even if he had already written something and voted, there's no posthumous um, publishing of opinions, right? Um, and so even if he wrote something that maybe you really want him to write um, or wanted his, uh, you know, his opinion to be weighed in on, uh, it's not going to work. You have to go all the way back to the drawing board. Um, okay, so that's question one. Question two, okay, so if there's four and four, you know, the lower court uh, decision stands, stays in place. But... Um, if it's a four and four decision and the, and they sort of, they issue like a one sentence thing. And it basically just says, you know, we're, we have, we couldn't come to a decision. It's kicking back to the lower court. It's like one sentence. And the important thing to know about that is that it doesn't establish a precedent, right? So it's not like the lower court ruling becomes the law of America, right? The lower court ruling is still just the lower court ruling. It just means that it's just as if the Supreme court had never taken it. It's just as if the Supreme court had never seen it. Um, the last thing, and the thing I think we're going to see more and more of is if it's a really important case, we've got abortion cases, we've got affirmative action cases, so so many um, things in front of the Supreme Court that are critical, they can and, um, and historically have done, if it's those kind of cases and there looks like a split, they kick it to the next, uh, to sort of the next go around, right? So the, the sessions are from June to October, which is a pretty good deal. Uh, so June, October. Uh, and so, um, so what they would do is it, instead of deciding cases before this October, they would kick it to next session, which begins in June of next year. And ideally there might be a, 
a, a new Supreme Court justice at that point to help them determine um, the, you know, those, those decisions, because what they don't want to do is make a decision or take a really important issue and then just like lower court. Right. Um, that's a fancy law, legal law school term. Um, so, but you know, what they don't want to do is just sort of leave it there. They, they, if they brought it up and they want to decide it and they feel like it's a good case, um, they're going to wait for that final justice to, to help them make that decision. And so they would kick that to the next session. So those are sort of the options of how they're going to operate right now. Um, and so we'll see in weeks to come sort of which ones they push, which ones they sort of kick back down to the lower court, and which ones they decide. I mean, they could decide eight justices are enough. Six justices are a quorum. So anything lower than eight is enough. Eight is there enough. Is, <laughs> eight is enough. They can decide with the eight. Uh, and so, you know, a, a seven to one decision is just as good as, as an eight to one decision in the meantime. And I think you're downplaying the fact that it allowed Justice Thomas to find his voice. <laughs> he spoke for and the first time in up. 10 years, yes. Because until now, he's been like a giraffe, capable of making a noise, but no one had ever actually heard one. <laughs> so I thought that was key. Oh, that, that's, I'm sure that's right at the top what of the What sound do giraffes make? <laughs> We've never heard a giraffe, right? That's the thing. They, okay. cl they clear their throats a lot. Okay, so now, now the political angle. Carson, what should the Republicans in the Senate do? Now, in the yeah. year and now, before the election, what, I, I think they. What should I, the Democrats? I think they've gone about it in the completely the wrong, the wrong way. I mean, Why I think they're uh, this this hardcore. No, we're not going to do any hearings. Not going to you know, take any sort of nominee um, nomination. Like the day he died, yeah. they came out. And said, no, <laughs> it's, not died. only was that just, I mean, kind of disrespectful, in my opinion, of kind of Scalia's legacy, but also, it's just I, I don't think it's a right political strategy for them they can they control the senate they can determine how long a hearing takes they can they can i mean it, the constitution is very clear i mean the president nominates the, the senate decides to confirm or not or not is the important thing they don't have to confirm anyone did not the president just chooses you rather to nominate. they do the dance of course <laughs> You can, you can, you, it, it means it'll take Obama, you know, a few months to actually put up a nominee. I mean, no one was expecting Scalia to, to die. Now, maybe they were expecting some of the other ones to pass away. Um, so they had a few, uh, some, uh, at least a short list of, you know, candidates to nominate. But it's going to take him some time to do his vetting and put up a nomination. Then you have to go through the dance of, you know, meeting with every single senator on the committee. Um, and then the committee needs to do their you know, investigation and hearings, and then they have to go to you know, every single senator and you know, do the courting then, and then the- Then it's 2017. Then it has to, yeah. So you can, you can draw this thing out for as long as you really want to, right. or not as long as you really want to. And with Mitch McConnell being kind of the deciding factor here, why not? Make it at least look like you're doing it, and then stop the nominee before That's until you'd actually know who your presidential nominee is going to be. This is over my head, but yeah, it would make Mitch McConnell a power broker. And isn't it possible that they could score more points by putting yes. someone on the hearing stand and and just peppering them with right. questions and so forth, and raising a whole bunch of the issues that the candidates are raising right yeah. now. And, and then strategically also, that may, that could convince the White House to put up someone a little bit more moderate, someone that may be able to get bipartisan support, um, that then if Republicans do see they have a Trump um, as their nominee and they think, oh dear God, the ship's going down, um, let's do this person because whoever 
know, Clinton might nominee or uh, Obama, Sanders, perhaps. then, yeah, <laughs> it could be Barack Obama. Mentioned. And you run, uh, run the risk of losing the Senate also with a Trump nomination. So, um, so, but right now, Obama has all of the incentive to nominate the most liberal person possible and then just kind of point to Republicans saying, oh, look at, look at them, they're obstructing. Yeah, in this this hyper partisan mood that we've all been in, this, not we've all necessarily been in, but I mean that we're all kind of living in uh, for so many years now. Um, I do kind of want to take a moment just to note, you know, one of Antonin Scalia's closest friend, Antonin Scalia, hard, hard, hardcore conservative, uh, is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a okay. very, very liberal. Uh, uh, That's justice. the thing. Yeah, I mean, and, and is, genuine good friends yeah. traveled together and, and really respected. Supreme Court is the only institution in D.C. that's not really kind of been consumed by partisanship. Um, yes. They, yes, they have very ideological differences. But don't don't get me wrong there. But they all really respect each other's intellect and and kind of thinking about how they go about everything. And so it, it, again, like this whole you know, thing going on in the Senate is kind of not really up to the standard even of the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court justices probably don't even, if I was a fly in their chambers, probably they'd probably be bickering about what the Senate Republicans are doing <laughs> right now, so. Okay, well, some of you may have, uh, on to another, our next topic, uh, some of you may have noticed me hand a question card to Chuck, and that was someone who asked me to pass a note to him that's saying, they loved your articles on the San Francisco homeless problem, and that's one of our topics. Um, really was a good job. Um, and that's probably the first time someone actually gave you a positive. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. None of you are commenters on SF Chronicle, yes. I can tell. So. But uh, tell us a bit about this, because this is a, a very serious issue, and it, 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 a part of what you're, you, you were talking about was the capacity that the city has actually put forward or, or, or uh, had built up to handle this or not. Right. So give us a... If you would. Well, I think we're all aware of the situation. I'm, it's, uh, and, and the number is $241 million we spend annually, which is half of the operating budget of the city of Oakland. And how is it possible that we still see people on the sidewalk in rainstorms? It's a, it's a terrible, terrible situation. So We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. 
It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Well, one of the things that I suggested, and uh, in my role as philosopher king, you know, I've been appointed by the, by the mayor. Um, <laughs> I think the idea of saying we have a homeless problem is, is, is difficult to, to solve. We've got several different groups of people. It's much more diverse than that. And I think we begin with the people who are desperately mentally disturbed on the streets. And we, you know, those people need to get off the street. We've all seen them with a, you know, a thin blanket uh, on a sidewalk. And instead, what we've done, and it's very well-intentioned, is what's called a wellness model, which is that you try to approach the person on the street and you try to convince them that they would be better served if they came in and uh, took mood-stabilizing drugs, which make them fat, unhappy, and depressed, instead of the meth that they've been using, which makes them happy and chipper for an hour and a half, and then they're good. I mean, it's, it's seriously, that's that much of a question. These people are, are saying, I'm depressed, I'm down, I know what would make me feel better, it would be methamphetamine. So I'd start with those people, and I would make an outreach. And what we've really done instead is cut the number of psychiatric um, acute care beds in, in San Francisco general. And it's the oddest story I've ever covered, because people from the acute care emergency ward get in contact with me, doctors and nurses, and say, we're being forced to send these people back out on the streets even though they're seriously mentally disturbed. And we know if we could keep them for a week, we could at least get them stabilized. And instead, we're not even keeping them 24 hours. And then you talk to the people at the hospital, the administrators and the spokespeople, and they're like, that's ridiculous. We haven't cut the beds at all. It's not, that's not true. It's all, you know, things are going very well. We're, pr we're proud of our work. So I think there's a disconnect. I would also say families and children would be second. I'd start with the severely mentally ill. I'd go to families and children. And third, I'd go to the veterans, because not only do they serve the country, but they also have access to a lot of federal money from different different sources. Didn't the mayor at one point say he was going to look into conservatorship? Mm -hmm. Whatever happened? Well, that's a tough one, as as you would know. Uh, conservatorships are very difficult to get in San Francisco. They sound draconian. Explain briefly what a, a conservatorship would be. And, and I have a, a woman who writes me on a regular basis, and her son is now 28. Um, He's bipolar. He's severely mentally ill. He goes up, he goes down. She described a situation to me where he was staying with them at the house, and he came downstairs and said, I have something I need to talk to you about. And her husband immediately ran for the phone to try to call 911 because he knew that when he said that, it was the beginning of a break. And he couldn't get there in time, and the, the son grabbed him and th tossed him. He went over a table into the fireplace. She was trying, the mother was trying to restrain him. I mean, it's a terrible, ter and she's begging to please put him in a conservatorship, give him an opportunity to have a, a more normal life and for us to have a more normal life. And it just cannot 
we cannot get it through. Conservatorship is kind of a power of attorney. So the so a person sort of uh, you, there's somebody else who is is able to make medical decisions and 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 decisions about whether they should be in treatment. And at one point, the mayor said, not the mayor, the city attorney mm-hmm. said that city he was going to look yep. into like the city basically getting its own conservatorship over some people, some of these folks who run up really high bills at SF General. You know, every once in a while you read a, you read an article, maybe it's one of yours, that talks about how there's sort of a, a dozen or two dozen folks who are responsible for uh, a large percentage of the of the spending we have on emergency services for these guys. So the idea was you take this, you know, this smaller group and you somehow get them under the conservatorship and that way you can force them into treatment um, legally mm-hmm. without... Mm-hmm running into any problems, but, it, but I was just, that hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. And thanks for explaining it. Cause that's what I was supposed to do. And I didn't do, but that's yeah. exactly, but, but they're actually, was way better. <laughs> they're actually saying in the city, if they could get a hundred people, they have a hundred people identified. And if they could get them off the street and into care and get them stabilized, you'd see a big difference on the street. And it just seems impossible in a city with this kind of money and concern and, and services that we can't get those hundred people some kind of help. And I would just start with that. I would just start with that. And from there on, I think, you know, there's obviously some people who are having drug addiction problems and, and it may be politically incorrect, but I can tell you, I've talked to people who say I would rather live on the street. I talked to a, I talked to a 21 year old kid three weeks ago who uh, had gone to college for a while. I thought he was, I thought he was some kind of a of a social worker. I thought he was, and he said, no, I live in a tent right here on division street. And he said, yeah, you know, I, I know I could, I have a, I have a personal skills. I'll bet I could get a job, but you know, I just really like getting high. And he, he spent in time in that tent on division street. And, uh, I'd put those guys at the bottom of my list. I'd put the mentally, severely mentally ill. I'd put the people with children, women in particular, single women with children, single women by themselves. I would do veterans. And then those 30 something age guys, you know, we'll get to you and we'll get these other guys taken care of. And I think it'd make a big difference on the street, but I'm we we try. (laughs) See, I am going to tell my wife that they applauded and she's going to say, Oh, come on. Get get serious. This will be on TV and YouTube and you'll be able to show her the proof. The sad that I think the sad thing is that there's a lot of state money available. The prop, uh, props, 63, which we passed in 2004, which put a 1% surcharge on millionaires, true millionaires, um, a personal income tax surcharge. Uh, That money is all dedicated toward mental health, health care for the state. The problem is the state auditor, the little Hoover Commission, I mean, multiple reporters um, and news agencies have gone in and said there is absolutely no accountability about what this money is being used for. Some of the things is just unbelievable. I mean, the Hoover Commission determined that you know, some of the money is going toward, I mean, like after school bullying programs and just you know, um, a hip hop car wash being one of them, yoga and soul chi for the stressed. Um, just mean things that th- that's not what the money was in- intended for, nor is it right. really helping the, the, the cause right. or the, you know, the, the, the root cause here. So that, that's the, the, there's significant state money, about a billion a year. Right. That could be going toward wow. municipalities like San Francisco, like Fresno, many of the other uh, big metropolitan areas where there is a homeless problem. And, and to make 
the point, make Carson's point, and to reinforce it, one of the reasons that we are now able to put Laura's Law in so many different communities, you know, Laura's Law goes county by county. And Laura's Law is the idea that you take someone severely mentally ill, you bring them into court, they appear before a judge, the judge says, I want you to start taking your medication, you're going to do a drug test next week. There's no force, you can't coerce anyone to take their medication. But, in fact, it's had a lot of success. But the reason that nobody was implementing that was they didn't know how to administer it. And recently, to make Carson's point, because it's so specious what Prop 63 is, is funding, they made a decision it could fund Laura's Law. And Daryl Steinberg actually has reached out after I wrote mm -hmm. that column, who was the author of, of 63, and I think is going to try to broaden the use of that money, which would be, which would be great. Yeah, yeah. But it definitely is a work in progress. That's yeah. right. And it's good to see Daryl Steinberg because for a while Steinberg was very, very kind of hands off. He's like, no, it's working great. Prop 63 is working great. Just give it some more time. That's all we need is more time. And I think finally, especially after I mean, both the state auditor and Little Hoover Commission, two very independent groups coming to the same decision a few years apart from each other, kind of showcasing that, no, this money isn't being, the, being used the best it possibly can. And on an issue like this, I mean, that's... That's, that's something where the state government should, should be investing resources. Okay, well, I want to uh, get another uh, political item in here, which is, and this I'm going to stick with you, Carson. Yeah. A bit of on the a story on, on the changing of the Republican Party, I mean, meaning the party itself, seems to be adapting to its role in the state differently. Could you explain it? Because if I try to explain it, it'll be very lame. But uh, tell us what happened well, and what it means. Why is it important? I'll try not to be lame. <laughs> um, so what we recently saw just uh, a, a week or two ago was uh, the state of California, like many other states, has what's called a managed care organization tax. This is a tax on um, organizations, private uh, insurers and public insurers that uh, provide health care to Medicaid recipients. Um, because of the ACA, Obamacare, uh, states had to kind of reconfigure how they uh, did those taxes. Otherwise, they'd lose the federal funding for a significant portion or all of their Medicaid um, federal funding. Uh, California was, being one, was one of them that the tax was not in compliance with the federal rules. So um, that means that California is going to lose a lot of money from, from the feds uh, if they didn't kind of redo how this tax was done. Last year, Jerry Brown made a big point on kind of funding Medicaid, uh, Medi-Cal, uh, which is our, our version of Medicaid in the States, and really made a big push about reforming how the MCO tax was done in the state of California. Initially got massive pushback from Republicans, naturally, the no tax, no never knew any, no tax ever um, party. Um, and it really stalled. He created a special session in the state legislature. Nothing really ever happened. He brought it back uh, again this year, really made it a central part of his state of state address again this year. Um, sat down with quite a few of the biggest um, MCOs in the state. They kind of came together with a good uh, reform that they all could basically agree with. The Chamber of Commerce came in and said, yes, we're endorsing this plan. But the big question was, because Republicans have just enough seats in both chambers of the state legislature, you need at least some Republicans to cross over and vote for the tax because under state law, any sort of any new tax requires a two third vote. So the big question out there was in an election year, Will you be able to find the sufficient Republicans in order to pass this new tax? Uh, Jerry Brown made it a very big 
point of calling it tax reform. It's just tax reform because it actually truly was tax reform. It was eliminating one tax and completely reconfiguring how not only the managed care tax was, but also how these healthcare uh, companies would be dealt with under the corporate tax system and personal income tax system. Um, and so, it, it, again, it was a very big question mark kind of going along as it moved through the, the committee and onto the, the, the uh, assembly and Senate floors. Will Republicans actually vote for it? Um, and what we end up having was in the assembly, 10 Republicans voted for it. And in the Senate, two Republicans voted for it. So, I mean, and it was supposed to be this big, dramatic moment where, you know, you're going to have Republicans, you know, going after Republicans, fights on the floor, you know, name calling, uh, re recall petitions being filed immediately. We're all into the cars burning and yes. the band walking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, think, think back, if you remember, uh, to the Schwarzenegger tax deal that occurred. Uh, what was that, 2005, I think, um, where a group of Republicans crossed the aisle and voted for this tax because Schwarzenegger asked them to. I mean, most of them, most of their political careers went down in, in a fiery ball um, after that. And so you're expecting a lot of the same thing because Republicans ran in 2014 on saying we will we will be the we're, we're the stopgap, no new taxes because if you elect us, and now we have this tax reform. So it suggests, in my opinion, that the Republican caucuses are kind of realizing that they have to change their tune in order to be competitive in this state and allowing certain members to vote their conscience whenever these type of votes are up in order to kind of show the voters that we are listening to you, we understand your needs and wants, um, and that we will respond accordingly. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. 